Hey folks, welcome to this week's podcast. Uh, Norval Feltz is our guest, along with Laura Cantrell, who dropped by the studio. Uh, two fantastic folks in the country genre. Uh, king and queen of country music, maybe. Uh, thanks to Matt Lucas, who gave me Norval Feltz's phone number. And uh, he, he doesn't do email, and he doesn't like to wake up early. Uh, so we, we worked this out, uh, and he turned out to be just a sweet guy. Uh, a great part of uh, music, country music history because, you know, he really uh, recorded at Sun Records, and so he's part of early rockabilly history. And then he also uh, had some huge hits in the 70s and part of that 70s music scene. So... I love guys with the, sort of two chapters, and the chapter, of course, the, the other chapter of he's, he hasn't quit yet. Uh, and just a humble guy, he sent me a couple of letters and a Christmas card, handwritten stuff. Uh, and his return address, by the way, is Norval Feltz Lane, which I think is great. Uh, so first we're going to hear from Norval Feltz, and uh, then Laura Cantrell dropped by and brought her guitar and played us a few songs on her way to a gig in New Jersey. And Laurel, Laura is a one of my favorites, so... Uh, so happy that she could join us so uh, we're going to hear from two great folks don't forget Ronnie Hawkins coming up a few other things check wfmu.org slash Michael to keep yourself updated of who's coming up on the program uh, let's start off with Norval Feltz and then stay tuned for Laura Cantrell Alright, there is Foolish Thoughts, 1957 from Narvel Feltz, and Narvel joins us. Good morning. I, now I hear you that usually you do not like to wake up before 12 noon, is that correct? <laughs> a, a little before then, but it's I'm early afternoon by the time I get myself going, you know. Is that is that just uh, residue from just being a, a, a touring musician for all these years? Well, I, I guess it probably is. But Loretta and I, my wife, uh, have kind of gotten the habit of, of, of sleeping late and uh, going to bed late. Yeah, well, that's your night owl, uh, I guess. So you have charted records in five decades. You have been making music a super long time. We just heard Foolish Thoughts. Do you ever listen back to those super, super old records? Well, sometimes I do. Uh, every now and, I'll, and then I will get one out and, and put it... Uh, in my car or my van if I'm taking a trip and and listen to one of them. They still sound great, and uh, they sound, uh, you and I were talking about this earlier, they sound sort of organic. You know, there's a wonderful, uh, it just sounds like a bunch of guys in a room playing, which is what I imagine it was. It was, uh, yes, uh, especially, uh, you know, when we first went down to Sun Records and... Uh, uh, did ten uh, sides for them on two different sessions, and uh, then a couple of months later, I got, got a uh, a chance to go to Chicago and record for Mercury Records, and we did some of the same songs again at Mercury. Yeah, it's interesting to sort of hear the contrast between. Uh those two those two those two different versions of some some of the songs so you're born i believe in arkansas but you grew up mostly in missouri in a farming town is that right that's right uh, i was born in arkansas uh near kaiser arkansas and uh, at the time i was born my daddy was a sharecropper and uh him and mama worked really hard and uh saved their money mama got a job in a store in kaiser and uh, they bought a little uh, uh, 40-acre farm in Missouri, and when I was 14, we moved to uh, 
the little community of Poe near Bernie, Missouri. And Bernie is where I went to high school. So was your life uh, going to high school and hang and helping out on the farm? Uh, yes. I would, uh, you know, chop cotton in the summer and pick cotton. They, there would be a cotton vacation. Uh, and in those days, the school would let out for six weeks for the kids to pick cotton. Because uh, all the kids were farmers' kids? Mostly, yeah. It was farming community. Were your parents able to make a go at the farm? Were they successful? Yeah, they were. They, they were made a uh, a comfortable living out of it. No, oh, that's nice. Uh, was there music on the farm? Was there radio? Did did your folks play instruments? Well, my daddy played a harmonica, and he played it real bluesy, uh, it, uh, sitting around the house. And uh, uh, Mama, before electricity came along, we had a battery radio, and uh, Mama would always listen to the... Uh, country shows uh, on and not keep the radio on all time. And so I heard, I grew up hearing Ernest Tubb and uh, Floyd Tillman and people like that. And then when electricity came along, then the, the uh, uh, radio would be on a lot more. And did you get a guitar at a certain point? Was that your first uh, instrument? Yes, I traded my BB gun when I was 14 years old. Uh, to a a friend of mine, Wayne Grubbs, for an old beat-up Gene Autry guitar that the neck had been broken off of it and had been put back on with some bailing wire and a Prince Albert tobacco can. <laughs> and and the uh, neck was really bowed, but I could cord it up to about the A fret. And uh, so I learned my first basic chords on that, and when we got up to Missouri, I, I picked cotton that uh, fall of 53 and ordered a guitar from Sears and Roebuck and then learned to play it. So this would have been uh, before Elvis, before really the, the term rockabilly or rock and roll certainly had been coined, right? I mean, this was straight country music you were influenced by, right? Yes, that's right. The, the first song that I... Uh, I uh, learned to accompany myself on guitar and sing the song all the way through was Caribbean by uh, Mitchell Torok. Mm-hmm. Yeah, wow. Uh, kind of a dramatic number there. Uh, so soon enough, rock and roll does come along, just a couple of years later. Uh, do you remember the very, very first time you heard a song that you would not consider country, something like Elvis? Or What did you hear uh, and how did you hear it? Well, I started hearing Elvis as soon as he started releasing records because the country stations uh, and the country shows always played Elvis. You know, That's All Right, Mama, and Blue Moon in Kentucky, and, and I loved all of his records, and I would learn all of them when they came along. Did you think there was something different? I mean, did you say, hey, this guy's not just a regular country artist? Did you pick up right away that this was something you know, maybe new? Well, I, I guess I probably did. And then uh, when I was 16 and uh, Baby Let's Play House was a hit in the summer of 55, I was hearing it on all the country radio shows. And then you could go into a a little place and the jukeboxes playing and seeing the effect that had on the girls. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, uh, so that made me want to do that. And also that summer was the first time I heard Maybelline. 
my sister and I were driving through Paragood, Arkansas, and her 51 Ford and Maybelline came on the radio, and I had never heard anything with a beat like that. And I thought, uh, well, that sounds like a hillbilly that's made him a rock and roll record. <laughs> and uh, I think a lot of people caught, thought Chuck Berry was uh, country at that time, before they, uh, before the publicity and before you saw his pictures. And but he, what a great artist and a great writer and guitar player and singer he was. Oh, absolutely! And you ended up covering Maybelline just soon after that. So it's interesting what your influences were to come from that. You know, on the farm, battery-operated radio, and the the country stations that I'm imagining were you know were being played there, and then uh, you know quickly to jump from Elvis and into Elvis and uh, Chuck Berry, and so you and then then the girls come in, so so you're motivated to learn these songs, uh, and the story is that uh, you somebody saw you in a, at a talent show at a, at a local high school, and pretty soon you were on the radio uh, locally, and then somebody That's said. Right. And then somebody had a connection and, and took you down to Sun Records. Is that right? Yes, that's right. I uh, entered a high school talent contest in Bernie, Missouri, and I sung Baby Let's Play House. And uh, then it went over really good, and uh, they wanted an encore. And there was this new song I had heard a few times by Carl Perkins. This was very early, 1956. And uh, so I sung Blue Suede Shoes. And there was, by by chance, was a disc jockey from KDEX and Dexter in the audience. Uh, Weldon Grimsley was his name. And uh, so he came back and met us at the end of uh, the show. And he had uh, had me to sing, you know, into his tape recorder and do a song. And so uh, I was naive enough to think that they might play that on the radio the next day. <laughs> So I was listening to the radio, but it said, if Narville Phelps is listening, please contact KDEX immediately. <laughs> and so uh, I ran outside. It was still cold winter time, and told my daddy what, uh, what they had said on the radio. And so uh, we were poor, and he didn't have antifreeze in his truck, so he would uh, drain the water out, uh, you know, when it wasn't... Uh, running it to, to keep it from freezing. So he got up under it and tightened the uh, the, the radiator and, and pumped water out of the, the hand pump and put water in the radiator and drove. He had a green 46 International truck. And he drove me the eight miles out the gravel road from Poe to Bernie, Missouri, to the nearest payphone. And I called the radio station, and they said, uh, bring your guitar and come on up. And so I did and took my buddy uh, J.W. Grubbs with me. And the station manager, uh, we did a song for him, and he said, take him on in and put him on the air. <laughs> and so that's how that started. Uh, amazing. So you didn't have a, the nearest phone to your house was eight miles away. That is that is, yes, and it was a payphone and Bernie. That's incredible. So you get down to Sun Records, and I know that you worked with Jack Clement, who who passed away uh, not too long ago. He was kind of a legendary guy, a songwriter, a guy who was kind of you know uh, a le- you know a key figure in the early days of Sun, and worked with uh, a lot of folks down there. Tell me, what did he bring? Uh, did he give have advice for you, or did he? I mean, you guys were yes, just a, a 
bunch of kids. First of all, a, a guy named Jerry Mercer hired me in his band to, as a featured vocalist, and I also had to play uh, upright bass for him. And I had to learn to play that in order to be in his band, so I, I did enough to get by. So we did a show on top of the concession stand at the uh, drive-in theater in Dexter, Missouri. And it was with Roy Orbison and the Teen Kings and Eddie Bond and the Stompers. So without me asking him to, Roy went back to Memphis and told them they should give me a listen. And sure enough, uh, in a couple of weeks, I got an audition with Sun. And uh, it was still hot summertime. That that, that show was August uh, of 56. And we drove down Leon Barnett, the lead guitarist in the band, and I drove down to Memphis and had to go into a city and find our way around and, and go to Sun Records, which was kind of a... Uh, exciting but scary <laughs> the thought at the time, and so we went in and and uh, did a few songs for uh, Jack, and he gave us some advice and said, uh, "Well, go home and write some uh, some more songs and get the whole band together and come back and we'll see what we can come up with." And so. Uh, by the time we got it all worked out, it was January of 57 to to go in for the first session. And uh, I believe Foolish Thoughts probably came from that first session. Yeah, I think I think you're right. So you you did record all these these uh, tracks there in the in Sun Studios in 1957, but none of them came out until later. Why didn't uh, Sun release those records? Were they just too busy with their big stars to kind of break somebody new? Uh, when uh, when we did the second session and we we had recorded ten songs with them, Jack said, "Well, I think we got a record here, uh, but it may take about a year to get around to releasing it. We got so many in front of it." And uh, prior to that session uh, in early April, April fifth, nineteen fifty seven, the first week of March of fifty seven, we had played the Fox Theater in St. Louis, which is a big, beautiful theater, with the movie Rock Pretty Baby. We'd do a bunch of shows a day, and uh, they'd play Rock Pretty Baby a bunch of times a day. And so there were some people with connections to Mercury Records approached me there and said, why don't you let me take you to Chicago and get you on Mercury Records? So I said, well, we owe Sun another session. It was coming up in about a month. So about a month after that, uh, I was booked in Litchfield, Illinois, in uh, another theater with another rock and roll movie. And the same man, Fred Barney, uh, came up there and said, well, you've got Monday off. And this was a Saturday night. said, why don't you let me take you to uh, Chicago and get you on Mercury Records? And so after Jack had told us it may take a year and they didn't ask us to sign a contract, uh, I took him up on it. So we went up to Chicago and uh, he just went up and into the unannounced to the office at 35 East Wacker Drive and 
and they were saying, what do you mean bringing a band in here, no appointment? And, but uh, Art Talmadge agreed to listen to a song or two. And so we brought our equipment up and set it up in the office, and Art Talmadge came over and stood. Uh, uh, I had kind of sung in his ear as a microphone. And uh, we did a couple of songs, and he, had, he said, send them on down to Universal and do 12 original songs. And so we went down and we actually wound up doing 10 songs that day. Then at the end of the day, they had a recording contract for me to sign. And then in a month, uh, the first record was out, and I was hearing it on the radio. Mm. Uh, amazing. Let me remind folks that Norval Feltz is our guest this morning. Your memory is amazing. It's uh, it's better than mine. Uh, so, <laughs> is there uh, was there like a tangible feeling that people were scared of rock and roll, or were not understanding it, or you know, just the way sort of you know, fifteen years later kids uh, people were uh, the next generation ahead didn't like the hippies or you know didn't understand the hippie music or didn't want to accept it was there that feeling from the older generation towards you guys well there was some of it was that way uh when i first got a job with uh, uh with jerry mercer and we was going around and and uh he was he would opening uh, with uh, uh jack and jill boogie and uh uh Boogie Woogie Country Girl and stuff like that. And then he'd call on me and I'd sing uh, Ooby Dooby or Bebopalula or something. And uh, we were booked to play a homecoming at a little community of Glennonville, Missouri. <laughs> Jerry didn't warn me of this, but when we went in that night, rather than singing one of those songs, uh, he opened with uh, Hank Williams, Hey, Good Looking, and, and stood very still. And uh, then he got Leon, the, the, our guitar player, which is a great guitar player. He got his fiddle out, and they played a, uh, played a broom dance. And then he said, Now here's Marvel Phelps to do you a couple of songs. And I did uh, Ooby Dooby and Bebop Lula. And this real red-faced guy came to the stage, and I could get, had pulled Jerry over to the edge of the stage. And Jerry called me over, and he said, uh, they don't want you in here. <laughs> and they, uh, they they kicked me out of the pavilion. I had to stay out and sit on the carpenter the rest of the night. <laughs> where do you think, where does that intolerance come from? What is that about? Any Any insight into that? I don't know. Uh, the, the guy made the statement, which I can't repeat on the radio, of what he said, and 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 so uh, they didn't want any part of me. They, they didn't like me, and so uh, I, I I was feeling rather down the rest of that night. I just got a job and wasn't happy to chop cotton, you know. And I thought, uh oh, that's all of it for me. I'll be back in the cotton field, and. Uh, <laughs> But uh, that that's a, an illustration of how things did happen in some places, even off in little rural rural areas uh, like where I was at at the time. Yeah. Uh, so you're torn around and you're working these uh, singles on uh, Mercury, etc. And I know that there is this strange, uh, well, to me strange, a huge scene up in Canada for guys playing rockabilly. Uh, 
where did that come from? And I mean, tell me what it was like and how was it different than uh, the, the similar touring in the United States? Well, Conway Twitty uh, was a friend of mine and had been at my first session in uh, in Memphis and had come out to our house at Poe and had dinner with us. And um, he was the first to go up and play. He kind of pioneered that Canadian show club circuit. And then he recommended Ronnie Hawkins, and he recommended me. And so I went up uh, the very, I started out in 1959 there, and uh, Ronnie Hawkins had already been through the uh, the circuit once, and everybody was loving him. And Conway had already had its only make-believe and was a big star, and so he was he was out of there. So we wound up going on uh, over really good in that circuit, and I spent the uh, majority of 1959 and 1960 in that circuit. And uh, it was really a good circuit. There was one club in Toronto, the Lecoqueur, and there was the Edison Hotel on one side of it and the Brown Derby on the other side, all in the same block there. And there would be someone at each of those clubs. And um, the Brown Derby, I was held over for about two months in the summer of 59. And during that two months, uh, uh, Bo Diddley was in uh, the Edison Hotel for a couple of weeks. Dwayne Eddy was there for a couple of weeks. Link Ray was there for a couple of weeks. And the Four Lovers were at the uh, at Brown Derby, and uh, a few years later, they became the Four Seasons. Mm. Sounds like so much fun. Yeah, it was. It really was. And so that's kind of how that, that circuit was. It, it was five hours a night, no dancing. So you had to put on a show to keep their attention. So you're torn around, and you're working in Canada, etc., and... Uh, you end up working with a bunch of different labels, uh, including Pink and Starline, uh, a few little one-offs here and there. I, I also noticed in the '60s um, there's some footage of you on the on the internet of you on uh, the Porter Wagner TV show, and I think you also had your own TV show for a while, uh, 1965 out of Arkansas. Is that right? Uh, yes, in '64 and '65 I had my own TV show on. Uh, uh, Channel 8 out of Jonesboro, Arkansas. What was the, what was the format of that? I, I just, they, they called it the Narvel Felt Show, and I just sung songs for 30 minutes <laughs> and talked to them and, and let each of the guys do a song on the show. Is there any video of that anywhere? Can we see that? No, sadly there's not. <laughs> uh, I contacted them after I started realizing that that might be important, and uh uh, they used the same tape over and over back then. Oh, gotcha, yeah. Um, one of my favorites from this time is uh, this song called Dee Dee. It's kind of like a Cajun song, 1967, and it has a little bit of like a 60s grooviness to it. I mean, you listen to your singles from this time, uh, Just this is just before your career sort of uh, became a second chapter, but like a little bit of soap, uh, also on the high label, 1972, and you can see that you're kind of searching for maybe the next thing, the next, because Rockabilly clearly uh, over by the late 60s, uh, early 70s, but I, I, 
you know, and, and you sort of the, the phrase I keep reading over and over again was that your career didn't start until you thought it was over. So your, your career is just about to have a, have a second chapter. But at that point, you know, 1971, 72, what were you thinking? I mean, what were the Rockabilly guys thinking? You know, was it did you think it was really over? Well, it, it, it first, by that period of time, I thought that if there's a hit record in uh, Narvel Feltz's future, uh, it's going to have to be in the country market. And so I started uh, aiming at uh, country radio. First of all, I recorded a straight country record, which I thought that's what I should do. And nobody played it. And nobody <laughs> liked it. <laughs> and then uh, I realized that a lot of my rockabilly records along the way got country play. And so I started doing songs. I did a little bit of soap, and, you know, with a steel guitar on it and like that. And it got a lot of play all over the nation. The different uh, important stations played it some. And then I signed with uh, Cinnamon Records. And so then the, uh, Bill Rice produced Drift Away on me. And it was a, became a country smash and went all the way to uh, four in Record World, five in Cashbox, eight in Billboard. And that, that set up my country hit streak. And... Uh, and big records then lasted throughout the 70s, and I kept charting uh, in Billboard uh, up until 87, and Cashbox on up to 93 in the country charts. Yeah, I think that if I got my research right, Drift Away was your first of 20 top 40 hits in the country charts. I think 42 in the top 100, but 20 in the top 40 is a lot of singles to, to place in, into the country charts. A great idea to sort of take a uh, an R&B hit and do a country thing, country arrangement on it, and that sort of became your pattern for a while. You'd pick these uh, gr- great songs that you could sing the heck out of, and, and that's just what you do. What, your voice around this time started to change. It's was it sort of a natural thing? Was it something you'd been practicing? Was it something that came with age? You know, you're 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 a little more intense and going a little more higher, and kind of there's more drama to it. Well, uh, I think that this came with the times and with the with, with what I was doing, and of course it fired me up when Drift Away became a hit, and I was driving across the country, uh, regardless of where it was, and I'd hear it myself on the radio four or five times wherever I'd go. It, that inspired me, and I guess I sang with more feeling, and we looked, uh, y- you know, for the songs. And about every other record through all of that period of time would be a- an original song, a great song, and it would be a hit. So I had big records in between all of those uh, covers that I did. But uh, people mostly remember uh, the lonely teardrops and the, the drift away and uh, and those songs. You ended up from cinnamon going, I think, to dot, and then you had a, your 
really what's your biggest hit. It's a cover of the Johnny Adams uh, song, Reconsider Me, which is totally, you make that song your own. And that was just a, a giant hit. Uh, 1975, it's an interesting time for country music, uh, and you're a huge part of what was going on. What was the 70s uh, mainstream country music scene like, and what was it like being a part of that? Well, I, I was really honored to be a part of it, and it uh, seems strange being on, uh, going out and doing uh, touring with Dolly Parton and uh, and, and uh, people like that, Tammy Wynette, the Statler Brothers, and Kitty Wells. It was very strange that when I became uh, a big artist and was happening and having hit records at the time, that some of my friends, uh, uh, like Carl Perkins, I had first uh, worked with Carl in, in, in around 1959 or 60 uh, with us opening for him. And then in uh, in the 60s, uh, he worked some shows with me, with just me and my trio back in him. And he was on my TV show. And then in the 70s, he opened some shows for me. <laughs> that seemed very strange. And one one time we was in somewhere in the and and one of the Carolinas, and b- before the show I went and I talked to Carl and I said this just don't feel right to me. It should be the other way around. He said, "Well, son, you're the one with the hits now, and you're the one they paid their money to see. You go on out there and you do your thing." <laughs> It sounds like you're a super nice guy. Did that niceness ever get in the way of your ambition? Well, it may have. Uh, I, I think sometimes uh, the people that are more firm and pushy uh, uh, achieve uh, higher things. Hmm, interesting. Well, one of the things I noticed looking at your uh, at all these different records and uh, some of these CDs you were kind enough to send over to me, and that's kind of a nice thing to have so much of your of your music for you know six decades still uh, easy to get for for people who are interested. Uh, is that you recorded at Royal Studios in Memphis and at RCA Studio B in Nashville and Sun Studios in Memphis and up in Muscle Shoals? You you kind of were at a lot of the sort of famous uh, great studios of, of uh, you know for recording uh, rock and roll music uh, yes I was and uh, six I believe it was six of my hit country albums were recorded in Muscle Shoals the first song I recorded in Muscle Shoals was uh, Reconsider Me I would call the next chapter in your life, it's kind of an interesting the way this turned, is after all these, uh, you know, 20 top 40 hits, uh, all of a sudden the 1980s come, and all of a sudden interest in the rockabilly stuff starts uh, bubbling up again. When did you first, I mean, I assume you had written that chapter of your life off completely. When did you first sort of get word that there might be, you know, some interest in performing the old rockabilly tunes again? The first time I had ever heard about uh, uh, something going on, I, I got a letter from a man in Germany, a guy named Wolfgang Monch. And he said, I have your son recording. This was in 1976, I believe. It could have been 75. Of, of my babe, is there anything earlier by you? I wrote him a letter back, and I said, I didn't know that was ever released. If you'll send me a copy... I'll send you a copy of my latest album. 
And so that would have been 1976 because the uh, my current album was doing what I feel on ABC Dot at the time. And so I sent him that album, and he sent me, uh, and it was a various artist uh, vinyl album, uh, you know, Carl Perkins and uh, uh, Hayden Thompson and, and different people like that on it that had recorded it, Son, and, and including My Babe by Me from Son. And the first time I ever, when I went over to Wembley to to, to do the country uh, festival in 74 in London, uh, and it was a big, big country show with, uh, oh, with George Jones and Tammy Wynette and just a, a lot of people. It, it seemed odd, all of us riding over on the same plane together. And there were some people that kept coming up to me and asking me questions. Uh, but all they wanted to know about was recording at Sun and Rockabilly and stuff like that. And I thought that was very strange, you know, because I thought that was, I thought that didn't happen and it's uh, it's history. <laughs> then in 1986, I got a call from England wanting me to come to Cardiff, Wales and headline what they called a rock and roll festival, a 50s rock and roll festival. And so I thought, well, okay, hey, Johnny, be good, uh, great balls of fire. Uh, no, no, no. <laughs> we want you to sing your own songs. <laughs> and I thought, well, that's very strange. Nobody ever heard them. <laughs> so at this point, did you have to go back and relearn your own old songs? Yes, yes, I did. And, uh, my son... Uh, was traveling with me then and playing drums, and so he and I got back, got got all those old records out. And they they sent me a list of the, my records that they wanted me to sing, and so we learned them all. Uh, it's like the old records, and we got there, and they had a band. Uh, we had a rehearsal, and the band. That's what was in them. They played like we played in 1956. And, and, and try to go beyond that, it wasn't there for them. Uh, mm-hmm. But w- went out there that night and did that show, and it was like going back 30 years. And I was this much older, but the audience looked the same as it did back then, all with ducktail haircuts and the girls with the, you know, poodle skirts and dressed like the 50s. And when the show was over, I left the stage and went back to the dressing room. They just kept on hollering more and more and more and stomping the floor. And so finally I said, well, I don't have anything else prepared. They want me to come do an encore. Well, just go out there and sing a song. And But the encore wound up lasting as long as the show did. <laughs> they just kept on. <laughs> That's great. So. I realized that there there's something here, and my son did too. He he came back home and uh, went and got my Gene Vincent and Jerry Lee Lewis albums out and took them back to his room, started playing them, and became a great rockabilly drummer. And uh, uh, sadly, we lost him in a car accident in uh, in '95. But he he loved doing those shows. Your son and, Bub. Yeah, my son Bub. 
Yeah, that's that's that story. You do have uh, two. You did. You had two kids, right? Yeah, yeah. We have a, a daughter, Stacia, and she still lives here in uh, Malden, Missouri, uh, the same town we live in. And you've been married to your wife, Loretta, for how long? Fifty-five years. <laughs> well, one of the great things about starting your career at such, you know, when you were teenagers, that you're still relatively young, and I know you're still out there, and you're still sort of balancing uh, these two groups of fans, these rabid rock of Billy fans, because uh, I know that that's only grown in, in the years since that story you just told. Uh, and then also there's those fans of those uh, great hits of yours, those huge uh, country hits. And I, and I know that you can still sing. And uh, you sent me your most recent album called Now is the Hour. And uh, folks, can, you're still making music, still writing songs, still uh, doing shows when you can. Uh, what do you do? What are you doing when, on days when you're not working? What, what do you like to do? Well, when I'm not working, I just like staying at home with Loretta. And uh, about all I do is uh, you know, I go to the grocery store when we <laughs> need to go. <laughs> uh, but I still do uh, enough shows each year that I've got to, uh, I have to keep myself in shape to do them. And I have to uh, sing the songs and get used to doing what I'm going to do on the show. Uh, before I go do it, uh, and I, I still go do. I, I went to England uh, in May of this year and and headlined the Hemsby Rock and Roll Weekender. Have you ever had any uh, formal voice training? Did anyone ever, uh, you know, teach you how to sing, or or is it just completely uh, a completely a natural thing for you? Because your voice is startling well thank you so much you know it's it's natural i've never had any voice lessons uh it, it probably i probably should have <laughs> had <laughs> but uh i realize uh after hearing the the new cd that i just released this past year of new recordings my voice sounds different than it did um you know back in my hit streak era well, certainly. Uh, but but I, I can still sing and stay on key. I, that, I, I saw that, too, from that. <laughs> well, that's important. Well, Norfolk Feltz, I've really enjoyed this. Such an interesting story. And, the, you know, it's the story of, of more than one uh, chapters of the music business. And that's always amazing when someone's able to straddle two different eras and then keep going, you know, to, 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 to keep going and never... Uh, Never, never stop is is amazing. I, I wish you luck. And is the best website folks can uh, check up on you? Is it mkoc dot com slash Felts? Yes, that's my official website, and I do have a webmaster that uh, that takes care of that for me. And I, I usually send her something uh, after every show I do, and a little uh, personal review of it and call it news from Narvel. <laughs> and sometimes I'm a little slow at getting them to her anymore. I'm not uh, as prompt as I was at one time. Yeah, folks can check there for uh, updates on what you're doing and where you're doing it and uh, records to buy and stuff like that. And I'll say it again, it's mkoc.com slash Narvel Feltz. And I'll, uh, there's a link to that on the playlist uh, for today's uh, today's show. You can find that wfmu.org slash Michael. Uh, let's close with Drift Away. Uh, just the, the song that sort of started the second chapter in your life. It has these uh, these very uh, the background vocals are very much of the time and the arrangement. It's all very uh, 1973. Uh, who picked this song? Was it? Uh, did you pick it? Oh, it was Bill Rice. Bill Rice, the producer. Uh, the producer. 
uh, Bill, he was that was the first record he produced on me. Hmm. And uh, him and Jerry Foster were really hot at the time as songwriters. They were writing a lot of country hits. So I, when I went into his office that afternoon, I, I had a six o'clock session. And, and that, that particular session was at Monument Studio in Nashville. And Bill said, well, here's what I think we should do. And he sung Drift Away. And I had only heard the song one time. I, I had played in Charleston, South Carolina, the Saturday night uh, prior to that. And I had heard it on the jukebox, uh, the Dobie Gray record, which was a hit at the time. And I said, well, you know, I thought I was coming to Nashville to cut a country record. And um, that sounds like all that stuff I've been doing in Memphis. And uh, don't we need an up-tempo song? Wouldn't we come nearer getting play on country radio with an up-tempo song with all of the, uh, the, the ballad artists they have to play? And so he thought for a minute, and he started strumming his guitar, the... Uh, the, the tempo that uh, my recording of Drift Away is and did it that way. And so that's how we recorded it that night. Am I right? The song is written by Paul Williams' brother? Yes, Mentor Williams. Mentor Williams, yeah. And it became sort of a, a, a classic, just uh, just what sort of the, the world needed, a, a country version of, uh, of Drift Away. Well, uh, I wish you a lot of luck, and I thank you for visiting with us this morning. Well, thank you, Michael. I, I appreciate you... Uh, having me on your show and i've enjoyed talking with you and uh, and, and and good luck to you sir day after day i'm more confused i look for the light through the pouring rain you know that's a game that I hate to lose I'm feeling the strain oh. Ain't it a shame, oh Beginning to think that I'm wasting time I don't understand the things I do The world outside looks so unkind I'm counting on you
Graham Goldman will be a guest on Toddophonic Todd's show this afternoon from uh, 3 to 6 p.m., who co-wrote that song, of course. And there's a very interesting history of how the 10cc uh, version was recorded, which uh, and there's some videos on it, so worth seeking out. Okay, Laura Cantrell is here. Laura, how are you? Hey, Michael. I'm great. Yeah, it's very interesting because you, as uh, some listeners have pointed out to me already, you used to be on WFMU right in this time At slot. this moment. Yes. It feels very strange. You hosted a, a program called The Radio Thrift Shop for how many years? Oh, 13. It's a lot of trips from Brooklyn, isn't it? <laughs> it is. I know you were disappointed when you had to end the show to become a superstar musician. Oh, right. But uh, I knew you had mixed feelings. But, oh, sure. But in some way, you must be happy not to, you know, just Saturday morning. Oh, I still miss Radio Thrift Shop for sure. Um, I, you know, it was complicated. I was pregnant. I had a record out. I was traveling a lot. Um, so <clears throat> it wasn't just one thing that, you know, that made it not. Um, easy to be here on Saturday afternoons anymore, but um, but I don't ever fail to miss you know doing a show and miss the FMU community and and yeah, yeah. Uh, well, you're all still that part stuff. of the family and yeah, you're still on like the I'm, air once in a while. Yeah, I do 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 what I can. It also gives <laughs> you an excuse to buy records, listen to records, you know, find music, even if it's not buying, just to seek out. You I have to because my show, you know. At least that's the excuse I use. It's <laughs> weird. It's very hard to let go of that sort of thing of curating. You know, think, oh, I've, this record would go really good with that other record. Yeah. You know, it's hard to, to let go of that mindset, even if you don't have an outlet for it. Well, so. well, one way I think that the doing a radio show for all those years served you so well was when it came time to pick cover songs. You had, list, you know, more than other people had listened to records. True. And on a deeper level, you had uh, done all this work. So you knew a lot of great songs, some that people didn't know, some that people did know. You know, and sometimes I would actually, I'd be listening to, I'd be playing something on the air and um, and humming along in the studio myself, and that song would be a song I'd end up trying to cover. Uh, and that was just, you know, the, the the impulse like to play stuff on the air and then to learn it for my own, maybe to play it, you know, in my set wasn't that far apart. I don't think sometimes. So interesting. Yeah. Well. A good song's a good song. A good yeah. song's right. a good song. Yeah, I, f- I find that to be, sometimes there'll be a record, and it won't be until I actually play it on the air once that I kind of have given it the seal of approval. It's like, that is a kind of a bar. That <laughs> once, you, once it's actually been played on the air, okay, that's a, that's a number one hit, hit record right there. There you go. Uh, tonight, a gig in Hopewell, New Jersey. We were just talking about this off the air. I, you know, I've lived in New Jersey now. Uh, I was talking to my wife about this. I was writing an imaginary uh, letter to the manager of Whole Foods this week. <laughs> oh, my. And it, <laughs> And I started thinking, I have shopped at your store for 15 years. And I thought, wow, I've lived in New Jersey now for 15 years. That seems ridiculous. I've been going to the same <laughs> store for 15 years. I mean, that's such a long time. But I still don't know where Hopewell is. That's where I'm going with this. But that's where you're playing tonight. That's uh, right. It's a, it's a little south of here. And it's not that far. It's like an hour, a little plus, an yeah. hour from, from here in And I was looking on the, City. on the web uh, Site of this theater that you're playing in, it seems like a lovely little, perfect, intimate space. Tables and chairs, very adult. Yeah, grown up. No I, mosh I, pit. Yeah, it's not a it's not a stinky rock club, that's for sure. But um, and you've had your share of all of the above. Yeah. I, absolutely. So no, we're looking forward to playing it. I think it's um, it's maybe in in a uh, sort of it's not in its first season, I don't think, but it's a, still a relatively newly opened uh, place that they're doing lots of 
cool stuff with films and and a music series. So I was really excited to get asked to play. Uh, there's a link on the uh, playlist for today's program to your website and on your website. There's a link to the theater. That's right. You have to. It's about three clicks away. It's <laughs> <laughs> so. like a name of a song. Yes. Six blocks away. Uh, you've opened for a lot of people. You've you've headlined a lot. You've been to Europe how many times to play music? I don't know if the top of ten my head. times maybe. Yeah, right? at least ten times. So uh, it's it's I I always find that it's a it's kind of a good challenge of your job is that you walk in and you don't know. You, you could be a performing arts center with carpeting and lots of bottled juices and things. <laughs> and, or it could be the place where X played last night or, right. you know, the punk rock place and uh, they don't do it. And here's your case of beer and uh, you don't want to touch the towel. Yeah, you know? <laughs> no, exactly. It's definitely, um, you know, you love rooms that people like to hear music in ultimately and whether that's like um, – you know, a, a theater where everybody's got like a, a relatively comfortable seat or a, a place that when you walk in might seem like uh, at five in the afternoon when no one's there, like, God, what is this place? And then when it fills up with people, you realize, oh, this is where people like to come to hear music. And, yeah. and it's just that place in that town that is it, that. I so. think as you do it more, I'm guessing you become more astute at just kind of gauging the vibe and knowing what kind of set to do or what the energy to push back at it is, you know, because you... It's it's so important to kind of have a two-way relationship with the audience. Uh, that's true, definitely. Yeah. I mean, I get, you hope that you get that. I mean, some days you may oh. you may not be at your best. Well, that's what's amazing, though. <laughs> to, to One day you go out there and, and nothing, you know. Right. It's like comedians say, you tell the same joke the same way two nights in a row. One night people laugh. One night they don't laugh. Uh, it's the same way with music. Just nothing some nights, especially when you're the opener. Some people are some in some cities. Some Everyone's cool. And then uh, the next night people just are loving you and you sell a million CDs. And it's hard to put your finger on it exactly. So you, all you can do is go ahead and do your best yeah it's it i mean i think you and you've done this also michael but you know sometimes when you go and play in a different country they're you know they don't um unlike new yorkers maybe they don't talk through the whole show (laughs) (laughs) so you have no idea and sometimes you're like like Uh, is anyone alive out there um and then after the show you get these such warm like quiet appreciative comments and you're like wow it's just a totally different custom here that it people is. don't talk, just you Especially know, express themselves in, out loud. You're from Brooklyn. It's, you live yeah. in Queens, right? Yeah. But, you know, growing up playing your first shows in uh, Manhattan and Brooklyn, Queens, people in New York audiences here are in some ways worse than anywhere. They're, everyone gets in free. Right. And, <laughs> and, you know, everyone's seen 80 billion shows. Everyone comes through town. But when you go somewhere where people don't come, where there's not a right. hundred bands seven nights a week to see right. and some good ones, you know, they're real happy to see you and they don't talk and, yeah, they're not on the guest list and they don't have some other better place to be right. later or get this, you know, Thai food that they need to, you know, <laughs> just, know. they're there to see you. Yeah. I know. It's funny. We did get to go to um, Spain and Ireland earlier this year and I love, um, well, first of all, just the chance to get to go either place. You you're just feel lucky to get to go and play music sure. and have that experience. But, um you know, it is interesting, uh, you know, both super, mu- super great music cultures and, and places where people love to see music. But um, I think they have a tendency to like, if you invite them to to burst into song with you in Ireland, they'll 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 usually take the oh, bait. Wow. <laughs> so Because I, a, a soccer chant? <laughs> not quite, but, um, you know. Oh, it, really? It, it can be, yeah, yeah. So I had just actually done the Irish Rock Review here for St. Patrick's Day. They asked me to learn a, a you know, traditional Irish song. So I was like, I'm going to try this out in 
Dublin and see if we can get anybody to sing along with us. And sure enough, it didn't take even like half a suggestion for everyone to just like jump right in. Well, we were talking about this on this on this show recently. Uh, oftentimes, I'll see a band and um, people will do things like a sing along or something, or, or some things that I would consider the most cliched, hackneyed thing. And uh, I'll be wrong because the audience will eat that up. And, right. You know, uh, I, we talked about this on the show recently. I, I went to go see the zombies and they played the song, Argent song, Hold Your Head Up, mm-hmm. uh, which is not the worst song in the world, but like a, the eight minute live version <laughs> when you know, boy, I could be hearing three zombies right, songs right. here, uh, but we're going to hear this with the long, long sing along part. And, uh, and but I, the audience was going Everybody was singing, hold your head right. up, <laughs> and, except me and Jordan and Juniper, right. who were like, you know. Uh, You're so, looking at your watch going, oh, right. God, that's another zombie song I don't get to hear. So I'm wrong about, like, people, I think people love it. I think people love to sing together, and, you know, we don't all, like, do it in school or church or whatever anymore, or wherever we used to do things like that, you know. How many Christmas carolers do you know? <laughs> And so, I mean, but I think people still love the experience of it. So, you know, when you give them an excuse to do it, I think it's it can be a good thing, Michael. I remember, uh, I don't know, my daughter was in the choir in, you know, third grade or fourth grade or whatever, back way back. And I remember going to see the performance and just being very emotional, partly because mm-hmm. it's your daughter, but partly I realized it was like, yeah, there's the fat kid and there's the skinny kid <laughs> and there's like, you know, and there's the wiping the nose kid. Right. But they're all singing, you know, and there's just something so moving about seeing a person Absolutely. going up there and just singing, good, bad, whatever. They're doing it for you. And it's, this is why people love music, you know, right. <laughs> because it's this really direct communication with other people. And the same thing in the Low Straight Jacket show last night. It's just like, oh, human beings. You know, here they are. <laughs> they got in a car. They practice. They put on masks. They're up there doing something. Just even like it or not, it's just you for me, I need that. I need people doing something. You know, that's what I would say about this radio station. Some of my favorite shows here uh are just the ones where people are trying to cook something up, you know, just right. whatever it is. Like, that's, uh, we need that. Uh, I think it's time for you to play a song. Okay. Wow, that was sure. a long Sure. Well, we did, we, you know, Michael, we you could go your on guitar. on. We could. What, do you, what is this? I just was in Nashville, and I was working on some writing, and... With people? With people. Um, and yeah. it's still, you know, that's still kind of an, uh, can be an awkward thing sometimes, kind of like... Um, Going on a blind date or something—something <laughs> something well, you like I, writing I, with people. I that talked you... to Nick Lowe. He says he's going to Nashville to write with people right. regularly, and he said some people. I think he said Dan Auerbach insists that nobody that you bring nothing. Right. You just stare at each other until somebody breaks out in a sweat right. or a song, and then other people say you must bring at least one line or something. something. Yeah. yeah, something like that. But uh, uh, there are different ways. So who'd you write this with? I wrote this with Mark Winchester, who is a bass player in Nashville. He is in the Planet Rockers, which is a very um, well-known, like going back to the 80s, um, rockabilly band. One of the first bands that was sort of back out playing on Music Row before BR549 and all the kind of hipsters came and reclaimed Broadway. The Planet Rockers were doing that um, back in the late 80s, and um, Mark ended up in Brian Setzer's band um, for a long time, still does the European touring with Brian Setzer Orchestra. So he's got it, you know, he knows his rockabilly and his... So when you said up-tempo, play me something up-tempo, I thought maybe we'll try this. So it's a brand new song. Brand new song. And I may really mess it up. 
in a minute. I can't be your confidant. I can't be a long lost pal. But if I'm not the one you want, just tell me so right now. I can't say it, this won't hurt. Who can say the wasp won't sting? But if I drag you through the dirt, darling, it didn't mean nothing. So climb. Yeah, for, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. The Michael yeah. Shelley show. You never know. Yeah, great. Uh, mm. So, how long does it take to write that song? Mm, I don't know. A few hours. Oh, that's pretty good. Yeah, not too bad. <laughs> so, how many new songs have you got? Oh, I've got a. I well, from going down there and, and working with several people, I've got a handful. We're cycling into the show. Um, you know, this is over like the last twelve to eighteen months. I've been going down to do that. Um. So I'd say five or six that I'm trying to play myself, and the rest to sell to Garth Brooks. Who or? knows? Who knows? <laughs> oh, I mean, cool. you know, sometimes you also come out of something and you realize you like the person, but the time, you know, you end up with half a song, and you know, it, maybe it gets finished or maybe it doesn't. Like some of the process also just seems to be like practice or exercise. It's almost like you're just keeping the creative muscles sort of um, limbered up. And so, you know, when you walk out of one of those sessions and you don't have the hit song, you're like, oh, well, at least we, we were engaged. Yeah, I think in that part of the process is the missing. Yeah. I so. talked to J.D. McPherson, and he said that he did try to write a song with Nick Lowe, and they went out to lunch after yeah. sitting sitting there <laughs> with guitars for a little while, showing each other cool things. Right. So, so you want to get some lunch, and yeah. And that was it. Well, you know, it's funny. Um, 
I love, there's a story about, I think it's Donnie Fritz and John Prine wrote a song together a while ago. And um, they went and they were hanging out. I don't know what time of day it was. Let's say it was early afternoon. And they probably, you know, had a cup of coffee and chatted for a while. And then they realized nothing was happening, so they decided to go bowling. And then after bowling, they got something to eat. They went back. They finally worked on the song. It's like, you know, it is a lot of hanging out and, and sort of just talking about things and sort of figuring out what you have in common with someone. So anyway, it's a it's a it's a different way to do it. It's also the, very much the Nashville way for the past 25 years or so. It just yeah. everyone meets up in these little rooms and it's very businesslike and uh, whatever. Yeah. Which is, you know, mixed <laughs> results, mixed results. So we don't have that much time we left. Don't. So, so I don't want to play a, a record if, unless, okay. unless we have to. No, we don't. Um, we could tell me uh, tonight in uh, Hopewell, New Jersey, at this beautiful Hopewell Theater, whose uh, musicians will be with you? Mark Spencer and Jimmy Ryan will be with me. Um, both guys that I've played with for a long time, and um, both guys were in a fantastic band, the Blood Oranges. The Blood Oranges, who uh, and they, I mean, Mark's played with a million people. He has uh, sometimes on uh, on television. Yeah, most recently with Sunvolt. I think he was on tour with Sunvolt for most of this year. Um, and uh, and Jimmy also, but he's stalwart of like Boston's. Um, and they both sing. Yeah, they both sing. So we'll be doing all kinds of stuff. Um, we may do something like this. I'm going to play in, since we're back in old stomping grounds. Amy Rigby tune. Oh, great! Don't break a heart that needs you. i 
Sorry to make you do that without warming up early in this morning, but you you hit the high notes. Uh, that's you know that's one of those songs that was like, of course, you know, it's just like why didn't someone else write that song before? But you know, and uh, that's the great thing about songs is that there's continually those kind of songs that you're like, how did this not exist? Right, you know, before Amy wrote that one. I mean, of course. Yeah, no, I I loved um, I love that song. For the second I heard it, I think even before she put out the Diary of a Mod Housewife and um, and. Uh, you know, I was, you know, a fan of hers from the Shams and, and from around New York City. So I just, uh, um, you know, I knew when she came, you know, even first started playing songs like that, that she had stuff up her sleeve and she was going to, you know, have a bunch of songs that were going to be great. Um, yeah. And I still can't wait to hear, you know, new Amy stuff. So, um, but I also love, I still love singing and playing that song. You know, it's been a while. We put it out a long time ago, but, you know, it still gets requested. And that's so great. It's a cool one to do. Yeah, I think we've had Amy, and she sat in that chair, sat in that same microphone. She's been on the show a few times. And I think, I mean, this is my own interpretation, part of what, why Amy wrote those great songs was because she kind of, she gave up. And start it over. It's like, well, screw this. Then sure. I'm just going to do what I want to do, and I'm just going to write what I, all the mean things I'm thinking. And right, I, you know, right, right, right. Yeah, she, no, I think you do. Well, that's probably you hit the wall. You bounce back. Yeah, and also just letting go of whatever's kind of self conscious or yeah. sort of conscious um, intentions. Sometimes you have about us. You know, maybe sometimes you have to clear all that stuff away. To it's really, not easy. It isn't easy because you you know often are like, oh, I have this cool thing. I you know cool. <laughs> chords that go together it's like well it's not going to mean anything unless you manage to pair it up with something that you know that expresses some kind of emotion so yeah. anyway i don't know so you've you put out this first record where uh, i don't you didn't hear the story because you were on the past yeah. train but uh, <laughs> i was walking down to my bartending job at probably four o'clock and i would get the mail and and there was a package from Jay Sherman Godfrey who oh, pr- right, right, produced right. it. And uh, so I walked into the bar, put the CD in, took the chairs off the tables, <laughs> you know, and started moving the glasses around and op- unlocked the door. And that, by the fourth song, I was like, oh, boy, they did it. You know, it was just like so good. I remember calling Jay. I was like, oh, my God. Like, boom, you did it. Like, I know. You, we're you guys still are proud of that one. 1990, right? Uh, no, no, 2000. Uh, 2000. Yeah. Yeah, right. No, no, yeah. I'm, I'm totally 10 years <laughs> it's off. It's only 10 I'm years an, off. I knew there was a zero. Yeah. yeah. 2000. So, and then it's been uh, an amazing career with, you know, uh, 
putting records on a matador, getting signed, being on some different labels, having managers, having booking agents, tr- you know, trying to keep a <laughs> not band. Not having those things. Right. Not having, <laughs> ha- trying to, you know, keep a band together and trying to, uh, you've done a, you know, opening for uh, a really wide range of right. people playing shows as a headliner. And, and I've really seen you put a lot of time and effort into this idea of like trying to figure out different ways to to keep spread the word to try to build the audience to keep yourself involved and interested in uh, a bunch of shows recently at Sid Gold's or a bunch of shows you, you've been doing runs of shows yeah you know, we try to I mean I think adding different instruments the, the whole I mean well ultimately you just want to keep doing something that's you know um, yeah. playing music so uh you know, and if that means like, you know, we didn't have any uh, a new record out per se this year, so I did the the series of shows at Sid Gold's. It was all states of country, um, which I hope to do some more of in 2018. And those were really fun. They were maybe the funnest of my shows this year, even though they featured very little of my own original music. But it was cool to focus on, um, you know, great writers from different parts of the country and think really think about different places and and songs that make you think of those places sometimes too. That was just cool and fun thing to do um and and maybe like the latest little thing to keep me interested in in you know wanting to show up and play live and like get the band together and you know there's a that there's a little bit of that goofy like you know judy garland mickey rooney like kids are gonna put on a show you know so um you know uh but but i do feel like um and i've continued to have this desire to to perform and you know you have to Figure out but I like that it evolves, and as a fan, yeah, it, do, it for has me. to evolve. You know, I mean, I have an eleven-year-old kid in school, so I can't travel too much. I can't, you know. So there are things that my time's limited to do. But then there are other things you can, you know, you have to find the other things that sort of, you know, fit um, yeah, yeah. your schedule and your, you, you your life give, at the moment. You so. get props for not giving up and for staying creative and Thank for you. evolving, which not Thank everybody you, does. Well, I'll you take them. Uh, your latest record is uh, live at the BBC performances, right? This is your latest Yep, release. it is. It is. It was That came out last year. I have it on vinyl. Yeah, but, uh, well, so you're so cool. <laughs> um, yeah, no, we, we collected a bunch of stuff from um, traveling to England to play – Play, got a lot of opportunities to play live on the BBC. So that is our most recent record. And I was really proud of it because it was sort of like a little time capsule of, you know, about a five-year period where I went to England every single time I could or to the UK or whatever to build a career there and got a lot of great opportunities. And I, I hadn't realized until a few years had passed that, you know, I had all these dat tapes in my... <laughs> Basically in the basement with stuff, you know, but with these, you know, John Peel and Bob Harris and all this stuff. So it was a really great um, fun to go back through that stuff and find things that could make a record. Yeah. So. Uh, your website is com, I believe. It is. And, you know, Michael, I just want to say real quick. Yeah. We're playing nearby a week from today. In your stomping grounds, Montclair at the Outpost in the Burbs. We did mention that earlier, yes. Uh, Outpost in the Burbs on the 16th and this uh, tonight at, in Hopewell, New Jersey. Wow, there's the music, Laura. You know it what that came means. so quick, Michael. <laughs> I, it, boy, it went fast. <laughs> went too 
goofballs just start yapping. It goes fast. Uh, Laura Cantrell, thank you so much. Tonight at the Hopewell Theater in Hopewell. Check today's playlist for uh, links to her website. And thanks to Norval Feltz, also a link to his website on the playlist for today's program. Uh, don't forget that uh, Graham Gouldman today on Todd's show. Don't forget Ronnie Hawkins on my show January 6th, January 13th. Ricky Riccardi from the Louis Armstrong House and Museum Rex is next. Thanks, Laura. This is fun. Come back soon. I will. You can come I back will. anytime. Any old time. Yeah, we barely scratched the surface. <laughs> I mean, really, honestly, we did. Uh, yeah. Ever get the feeling you've been cheated? Good night. I, I want to remind you folks this is WFMU Storms, WMFU, Mount Hope in New York City, and Rockland County at 91.9 FM and online at WFMU.org.